This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Bob Hughes is the guest speaker on this message. Uh, We are going through the book of Revelation. We're in a a study of the letters uh, written in the first uh, three chapters of the book of Revelation. They're, They're letters that are written by the resurrected and reigning Lord Jesus to seven churches in Asia Minor. And uh, though there is much symbolic about the book of Revelation, and if you've been a Christian for any time at all, you've heard some wild and crazy stuff about what all the things mean in the book of Revelation. Uh, What we're looking at together is uh, letters that are written to seven real churches in real places in modern Turkey at a real point in time with real issues. And uh, these letters tell us about They tell us about Jesus. They reveal Jesus to us, who he is in all of his resurrection glory, what he sees and cares about in his church, and his call to repentance and the promise of blessing and fruitfulness to everybody who will sincerely follow him. So these letters are also written to us, aren't they, okay? And they're written to us as individuals. They're written to us as churches in our day. And uh, we need to know that Jesus sees us. And his, those flaming eyes uh, search through our church, through Grace Church, and into our hearts to help us to know the truth about ourselves and to see him more clearly and to turn away from the things that are a waste of our lives and to, to engage life indeed. And uh, at the end of each of these letters, it says, let him who has ears hear. And so uh, may that be this morning. Let's just pray and commit our time to the Lord and ask God to illuminate our, our hearts and our, our ears as we look to him. Lord, we thank you so much that you're here this morning. Lord, we we just want to pray uh, the prayer that you taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, thank you that we can come to you as Father. What a wonder. Lord, you're not uh, aloof and distant, but you are our Father, our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. May your name, may your reputation be hallowed and glorified, Lord. Your kingdom come. Lord, would you come and rule over our lives in greater and greater measure, where there are any areas that are out of order or not yielded to you. Lord, would you align us more and more for your glory. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. Lord, help all of the truth of the gospel to be played out in the reality of our lives. Lord, don't let us be one person on Sunday morning and a different person in some other arena. Lord, would you make us people of integrity where who we are on Sunday morning is who we are in our family and on the work, in the workplace and uh, in everything we do. We give you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we come now to the church in Sardis, which is the fifth of the seven churches addressed in the book of Revelation. And let's read together. We're going to begin in Revelation 3, beginning in verse 1. 
And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember them what you've received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not only know, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Sobering letter, isn't it? It's unusual. This is uh, one of the most uh, intense of all of the letters that are written to the churches. Little historic background on Sardis. Sardis was a city of past glories. Once the capital of the Lydian kingdom, Sardis reached its pinnacle during the reign of King Croesus in the 6th century. During his reign, gold was discovered along the Patgus River, which flowed right through Sardis. The king became so rich that in Greek and Persian cultures, the name Croesus became synonymous with extravagant wealth. The expression, he's richer than Croesus, is still in use even today. Sardis was built on a mountain with a fortified acropolis on the sheer peak of a slope. It was considered impregnable. To capture the acropolis of Sardis had become almost proverbial for doing the impossible. And yet twice in the city's past, Sardis had been taken by stealth and overridden by its enemies. The parallel between the city's history and Christ's sober charge for the church to wake up from its slumber is striking. Church history tells us that Sardis was the first city in Asia Minor that was converted to Christ under the preaching of the Apostle John. But by the time of this letter, both the city and the church, there are, uh, there, there's a deplorable contrast between past splendor and current decline. Strikingly, Sardis was coasting on the glorious reputation of days long gone. This is the first letter that we're going to look at where Jesus gives no commendation to the church at all. Every other, the Lord is kind, isn't he? I mean, even, even in the business world that I'm familiar with, you know how to give a love sandwich, right? You know how to, you kind of start with, hey, want you to know how much I love you, and then tell the truth, and then, hey, come here and give me a, give me a noogie or whatever it is. But uh, Jesus does not even have... Uh, the social forbearance that, that uh, we might have. He has had it, and he is frustrated, and he loves his church too much to say anything but the truth to them. And uh, as we look at the other churches, he, 
in Ephesus, Jesus was able to commend them for their doctrinal convictions and their endurance. In Smyrna, they were commended for being spiritually rich and enduring persecution. Pergamum was commended for holding fast to Christ's name and not denying the faith. And Thyatira was commended for their growing love, evidenced in deeds of service. But when we come to the church in Sardis, tragically, Jesus has nothing good to say, but only a sound rebuke. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Somehow at a a distance, um, there must have been some outward appearances that the church in Sardis was somehow okay, smiling people, lots of activities, plenty of programs, folks coming and going. Um, with just a superficial glance. Most people didn't see that there was something terribly wrong. But our omniscient Lord Jesus sees this church with a very different set of eyes. People are able to see the what of our activities, aren't they? But Jesus sees the why behind everything. He, he knows the why behind everything we do in, in, in every activity. Jesus says something un- unbelievable. He says, I know your works. I know your works. He doesn't say, I know your heart. He doesn't say, I know your born-again experience. He doesn't say, I know your intentions. He doesn't say, I know your theology. He says, I know your works. Jesus knows. Jesus watches. Jesus assesses their works. And uh, those can be fighting words for uh, us Reformation people, right? Right? You hit that word works, and it's like, wait a minute. Okay, I'm on my guard now. What's this guy trying to tell us? We've got strong spiritual convictions, don't we, that that our right standing with God is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, right? Not by works of righteousness, what we've done. But according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, right? And yet Jesus says he's looking at their works. It's, it's absolutely right to have a clear theology on the gospel that our righteousness before God is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But it's also important to understand that Scripture says a little bit more. The Scripture also says that though there are no works of any kind that we can offer to God as a payment for our sin, that good works are a natural byproduct of a life transformed by the gospel, that good works are to be fully expected in the lives of all true disciples of Jesus Christ. 
And if you've been a believer for a while, I'm sure you probably know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's one of, if anybody's ever memorized scripture, it's one of those first verses that you memorize. And you may not know the address, but as I, as I say to you here, you'll know it. It says, for by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the work of God so that no man should boast. Isn't that a great promise? For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And that is not your own doing. It's the free gift of God, lest any man should boast. But the problem is, Paul continues writing. It doesn't just stop there. There's actually a verse right after that. And guess what that verse is? It says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he's prepared in advance that we should walk in that we're supposed to walk in. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Why are we created in Christ Jesus? For good works that he's prepared for for us in advance, that we should walk in them. So we've got to be sure that we see the entire context to understand not only the truth of the amazing grace of God by which we're saved through faith and grace alone, right? And the resulting impact of good works that God expects his grace to produce in our lives, okay? Does that make sense? James, in his second chapter of his letter, boldly says that faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. And here, even Jesus The resurrected Lord assesses the works of the church in Sardis, and he calls it dead. Matthew 5, Jesus meets with his disciples, and he he communicates to them so that they know what their identity is. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You're, You're supposed to be a city set on a hill. Let your light so shine that others will see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Good works. We hear that term, good works, and I don't know if you're like me, but whenever I hear the term good works, my mind immediately switches into like religious mode. And I, or I go back to Boy Scouts, you know, um, uh, what's the Boy Scout slogan? Do a good deed daily, right? Or, you know, I, I go back to that or I think of walking grandma across the street or helping a, a sweet young lady or maybe helping in children's ministry or helping on Thanksgiving at a food pantry. I think of these totally unnatural, completely outside of the ordinary circle of life activities that somehow we do that are supposed to be good works that are pleasing to God, right? And, and yet, you know what, the, you know what the, the words good works mean? Good work and more. That's what good works mean. Good work in plural. It means to do everything we do for the glory of God, to do everything we do well, to see Jesus in the center of every activity. But if Jesus is rebuking this church saying, I know your works, I'm watching your works, 
You may have a reputation that you're alive, but I know the truth about you. You are dead. And if he's charging them saying, wake up, your works are incomplete before God. We should probably know and understand what the works are that he's talking about and how we're supposed to do them, right? That would be helpful, wouldn't it? Well, last week, I'm going to do a little bit of a, of a curve today. I know we normally just go line by line. I felt like we should pay a little, we should do a little, a little um, um, adjustment and concentrate on a section that Craig covered last week, but I think there's more meat on the bone. I think there's, a, there's more for us to enjoy there, and I, help, I think it really ties in with what the Lord is saying to Sardis as well. So if you have a paper Bible, flip a page back, or if you've got a digital, do that thing, whatever you want to do. And uh, last week, we looked at the church of Thyatira, the Lord Jesus evaluation of Thyatira was the exact opposite of his evaluation at Sardis. Though a small, insignificant church, the church at Thyatira excelled in good works and continued to grow in character and fruitfulness as time went on. So flip back with me and let's just see what it was that the Lord was commending. And I think that there, is, there are insights for us in this, that if we can get a hold of this, can absolutely revolutionize our lives. It's very simple. It's like everything that's profound. The, the, it isn't about knowing it. It's about what are you going to do with what you, what you learn. But uh, let's ask the Lord to help us on that, okay? Here's the verse, Revelation 2.19 affirming the church at Thyatira, the Lord Jesus says, I know your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. Your love, faith, service, patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. Before we kind of unpack these five points, we've got to always remember that only the gospel empowers our lives to do anything good. Only, nothing we're going to look at today can be accomplished in our own strength. And we need to remember the power of the gospel. We need to remember where we came from. And I, I don't know if, you know, I'm, I'm an old dog, but uh, there used to be, when I was in college, there was a campus ministry on, on, on campus that had one of these little brochures where they would share the gospel. And they would share the gospel based around an illustration that had a drawing of a throne, a chair. And what, what it basically communicated is what those of us who have become believers know that before we came to know Jesus, there was this throne at the center of our lives. And there was only one person that was on that throne, right? It was me, right? It was you. It was self. We're talking capital S, capital E, capital L, capital F, right? And everything about life was evaluated through the lens of how it affected me. Every relationship was about me. Every 
job responsibility was about me, whether they were able to give me what I wanted, pay me what I wanted, that was something I was interested in. Every other activity I was involved with was about me. My time was about me. My money was about me. And by the grace of God, um, the Lord sent a friend into my life. We used to play in rock and roll bands together, and uh, he was a genuine friend who had gotten saved on me. And I thought, oh, no, there goes that relationship. There goes my buddy Jack. But, but he began to, to, he was my friend. We had something in common. We played music together. Uh, he had me in his home. I knew his family. I ate a lot of meals, a lot of Captain Crunch cereal at midnight at his house. Um, we did stuff together. We t- he was real. The guy was not perfect. He was just like me. He was goofy. He was not, he, he had not, he was not the, the perfect witness. Um, but he cared about me. We talked about the real stuff of life. And he, he began to share the gospel with me. And he told me the incredible story of the gospel that, that uh, God had created the world perfect and beautiful. And he'd created people in his image that were perfect and beautiful to know him and walk with him and enjoy the glories of his creation and join him in his work in seeing the, the world flourish. And man had stiff-armed God and chosen to go his own way. And the effect of that rebellion had sent a tremor through all of God's created order. And it, it, it broke everything. It broke everybody. It broke everything. And uh, it was the reason why I was the way I was. Because it, I was a broken guy in a broken world. And, uh, but he told me that Though in that state, there was absolutely no possible way that I could ever pursue God. It's impossible. It was never going to happen. Not only I didn't, I didn't care, but I couldn't. I was dirty. I was, it was impossible. I could never pursue God. But, but the gospel, the story of the gospel was that God pursued us that he came to earth, that God became a man. That's what, that's what we celebrate at Christmas, that God became incarnate. God came to us. He came to meet us. He walked in our shoes. He lived in our skin and dealt with the same temptations that you and I deal with without sin. He, he dealt with the same weakness in his body and the same frailties. And though he was perfect, flawless, beautiful. He chose to give his life for me. He chose to go to the cross, to bear the immeasurable sin that I deserved for me so that I could receive the immeasurable riches of righteousness that I could never earn in my life. It'd be impossible. It's just so beyond. And uh, so I'm sorry, I'm not, I mean, I, I don't really walk around crying all the time, not even when I share the gospel most of the time, so sorry about that. But that the gospel changed my life. And, and I mean, that's 
that's 40 years ago. It's something like that. But everything changed. It didn't change perfectly. It still hasn't changed perfectly. But the throne that was in the center of my heart, Jesus took his place as the king and the Lord of my heart. And he booted my selfish, lousy self off of the throne. And he started to rule things according to his purpose. His kingdom began to come. And where relationships were just all about me, were all about using people, or it, I started to learn that there was, there was a something else, that there was a whole other life of living for the glory of God and living for the good of other people. That rather than a life that was all consumed in me, that there was a whole other dimension that God was inviting me into that was away from myself, that was, it was up in worship and honor to God, and it was out in love and care for other people. And it began to affect my relationships, and it began to affect how I used my time, and it began to affect what I read and the stuff that I used to spend all my time doing. I started reading the Bible, started praying, started to really get to know God, and it started to affect my pocketbook, and it started to affect, it just it started to affect everything. It started to affect my work, my job, slowly, right? That's always one of the last ones, right, guys? But it's a wonder. And, and if we don't begin with that, all of this other stuff is just a bunch of religious nonsense. But if we begin with the reality of what Jesus has done in our lives, and not just a here kind of thing, but the reality of who we were, who we were. I don't care what a nice church person you may have been. I was a scoundrel, but you're no better before holy God. We are all needy. And it doesn't take much to look at God's holiness and look at ourselves and be in awe of the wonder of the gospel. And that awe, that wonder, that heart change, that throne change is supposed to be played out. It's supposed to move from the theoretical of an experience that I had one day in my life about many years ago, like the Church of Sardis that had, had a great story once. But it's supposed to be a gospel that is now. It's, it's real now. It affects me now. I, I remember who I am now. I remember what he did now. And it affects, and it gets real practical. When I walk out the door on Sunday, I, I don't change hats. We don't change hats. It's, it stays, it lingers. And we begin to engage life with Jesus on the throne. And it affects everything, everywhere all the time. And that life is the life that every disciple in Jesus is called to live. It's a supernatural life. It's a glorious life. It is a life with heaven in view. And sadly, for most of us, it's just something that we, we just only experience and 
little glimpses here and there. And it's not the way God wants it. He wants us to know who he is, what he's done, who we are now in light of the gospel, what that means in living our lives, the brief years that we have. My years are briefer than yours, but yours are just as brief in eternity. And whatever we've got or how much is in the bank or our position, all that stuff, those are all important things. They're important stewardships from God. We want to be faithful with them. They, all of those areas are important areas, but they, they need to be informed by a much bigger picture uh, than they normally are, right? So, okay. Back to Revelation 2.19. That was a bit of a diversion, huh? Okay, 2.19. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance that your latter works exceed the first. These five points are absolutely life-changing. They're absolutely life-changing. And the first point is the first button on the shirt. You get this one wrong, and just forget about all the other stuff because it won't work. You're going to look like a dork, and uh, it, it won't work. But here's, here's the first one, and it's, it's love. And I, I want to make, make the bold statement that love is not uh, just a many-splendored thing or love is not not having to say you're sorry or love is not just an emotion that I feel among a very small circle of my dear ones. Um, Love is a reflection of God. True love is a God thing. Love is a reflection of It's a picture. It's a a type or a foreshadowing of what's eternal and a picture of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 13 says that the greatest of all is love, right? Why? Why is the greatest love? Why, why, Why can't it be something else? It's because love is a reflection of the essence of the gospel, that God so loved the world that he gave his son. That's why it's so important. And we've got to know, we have got to know that there is, I mean, this is the biggest statement that I'm going to make all morning. Please hear me. We have got to know that there is nothing more important in all the world than the gospel. There is nothing more important in all of the world than the gospel. The gospel, the person and work of Jesus Christ is the central focus of all of God's delights from eternity past to eternity future. The the person and work of his son is the most precious thing in all eternity for God the Father. And it needs to be the most precious thing to us. If we're going to see life right, that's the truth. You want to see reality? That's the truth. The most precious thing in the world is the gospel. God's central focus of delight. 
And because, because the gospel is God's greatest joy, and it's God's only solution for fallen people in a fallen world, there's nothing more important than making every opportunity in every relationship, in every task, in every moment to point to the beauty of the gospel in all that we do. There's just nothing more important. Love gives. Love finds joy in costly sacrifice. The act of freely relinquishing personal freedoms and resources to the benefit of others is godlike. Saying no to me so I can say yes to you. Love is the ability to deny self for the glory of God and the good of somebody else. It's the most powerful thing that we can do because it reflects the most important thing in the world. The great commandment in Matthew 22, we all know it. Jesus is asked by the scribe, Lord, what's the great commandment? Jesus responds, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two things rest all the law and all the prophets. Why, why is the great commandment so great? What's so great about it? Is there anything greater? It's great because it's the gospel. It's a picture of the gospel. It's what Jesus did. He loved the, the Lord, his Father, with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he loved you and me as himself. And he gave himself for us. It's the gospel. And, and who he is is who we're supposed to be as Christians, as little Christ. That's what we're called to. We're, we're called to a life. And, and I, I know that though as believers, Jesus has taken the throne of our lives. I'm not talking about, don't want anybody to get nervous or insecure or whatever it may be, whatever. I mean, maybe you should be secure, insecure. So that's good if you feel insecure. Good. If, you know. But guess what? Me climbs back up on that, that throne, doesn't it, all the time. And we've got to be intentional, don't we, to fight that whole process of having everything is about me and church is about me and my marriage is about me and TV show stinks and that's about me and, you know, nothing good at the movies or whatever it is and my boss and blah, 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 blah. And, and we have to fight that thing because we're, we're Christians. We're little Christ. It means we're called to live up for the glory of God. We're called to live out for the good of others, to give ourselves for the glory of God, to give ourselves for those who don't know him. It's the greatest thing in the world. It's the great life. It's the, it's the high call. It's the best. It's, it's awesome. It's hard, but it's good. It's, what else you want to do? It's right. We'll be glad. We're going to look back and we say, that was right. That was good. I'm glad I did that, right? There's nobody who's going to be saying, oh, man, I missed, you know, 24. I missed that one season. Oh, who cares? Okay, because love is God's unique means of pointing to the gospel,
It should be our primary focus. And it needs to be the lens that we look through as we think about every area of life. And I want to give you, I'm going to give you two questions right now. Dads, heads up. If you write these down, you've got enough material. This, this, you can coast on these two questions until Jesus comes back. This is family nights. This is walk with your daughter. This is date night. Just these two questions. You lead with these two questions, and you will rock. Here they are. Here's the first question. In whatever arena it may be, you can use the word arena, you can call it your area, you can call it, you know, the, the, uh, the, the historic Christian term is vocation, areas of calling, areas of responsibility, work, family, money, uh, community, the stuff of life, the things that we're all involved in, okay? Here's the question. Whatever arena you're in, let's say, let's say it's Thursday afternoon. Picture in your mind your Thursday afternoon. Okay, where are you? You're at work, you're at home, you're, you're uh, serving somewhere, you're cleaning diapers, you're pick, pick your area, you're in school. Okay, here's the two questions. Number one, how does God want the gospel displayed here? How does God want the gospel displayed? displayed here? How does the gospel inform here? I know, you know, I can use the illustration of guys. Everybody picks on the guys. I love picking on the guys, but how how does the gospel inform our marriage? It's an easy illustration. Guess what? Guys, you're supposed to be a picture of Jesus to your wife. You're supposed to give your life for her and you're supposed to wash her with the word. You're supposed to care for her and nurture her, protect her. Uh, I mean, that's a high call. You're supposed to be Jesus. Is that clear? Is that a clear enough illustration? Discouraging for you, I guess, right? Ladies, you're supposed to be a picture of the church. You're supposed to respond to your husband. That's what the gospel, that's why your marriage matters. That's why God created it, because it's a picture of the gospel. Every vocation of life matters because in every arena, work, family, community, fun, sports, money, whatever, in every arena, God wants the gospel displayed. There's a way to do that. There's a way to do your occupation, men and ladies, with a gospel understanding. God created everything that we do. Unless, unless we're in some kind of, you know, unless you're, well, we're not, we're not in Denver. So unless you're selling dope, if we, were, if we were, you know, in Denver, you could do that. And I don't know, I guess that's a bit, maybe a big debate in the body of Christ. I hope not. But uh, unless you're doing something illicit, everything you do, is an extension of God's kind care for the world. It matters. Simple things. The, the guy who picks up my trash. You can think of garbage pickup guy. No, that guy keeps, keeps our city clean. He keeps the rats out. He keeps the disease out. That guy's really important. His job is dignified. It's, it's a godly calling that he should, he should put on that uniform with real dignity and a sense of, of, uh, of honor. It's important. It doesn't matter what we do. God has 
a purpose for that, and it's supposed to be a context to display the gospel. So that's question number one. You may need to do some Bible study on your area. You should. Do you have a biblical understanding of your arenas? Are you a husband? Do you know what the word says as a husband? Are you a wife? Are you a son or a daughter? Are you a parent? Are you a worker? Are you an employer? Are you an employee? Are, are you a, a pastor? Are you a member of a church? The scripture, if you just park in the book of Ephesians, second half of the book of Ephesians, we'll go through all of that stuff. And in, in many of those areas will be addressed. But we have to have a biblical understanding of what we're doing, and we're just going to bounce off walls. We're going to waste our lives because we're not going to be aware of who we are and why we're here. We're Christians. We're, we're, we're representatives of Jesus. So, number one, how does God want the gospel displayed here? Number two, how can I most effectively love others here for the glory of God? How can I most effectively love other people in this arena for the glory of God? And I know, you know, we're used to thinking of love in the romantic sense, but it's, it's who can I sacrifice for here? Who, who is here? Who is in this arena? Who is in my office? What are their names? They're people, right? Who are they? What, what would God... What does the gospel look like here? And what would the Lord have me do to express love in a way that glorifies God? How can I serve that person? There's something I can do. I'm in school. I'm in class. How, how does the gospel inform my role as a student? Who are the people? Who's the guy on either side of me? How, how, how can I do something? What would the Lord have me do that would express love and honor God? Don't be weird. It's, it's real practical. Don't do something religious and think that's love. Please don't do that. Don't, don't come to that conclusion. These should be real normal things. The guy, you know, buy a guy coffee. Uh, you know, the guy's got to float the guy 20 bucks. Uh, go have lunch together. Bring lunch into the office. Order pizza. For, there are just so many things you can do that are just so normal. Have somebody over to your house. Have an unbeliever in your home. <gasps> you know, that'd be fun, right? Maybe he'll smoke and drink. I don't know. You better enjoy it before they're smoking something else, right? Before they change the laws on that one. Okay, so it's my marriage, my kids, my work, my leisure, my school, my career prep, my money, everything, everywhere, all the time. And to engage those two questions, it's going to take some prayer. This could be, this could be your project for the year as a family. You can engage these two questions and go through every person in your family and answer those two questions in your family. What a rocking year that would be. You would have to pray. You'd have to study the scripture together. You'd have tons of conversations of of how it works out and what the applications would be just around those two questions. And it's because love is a picture. It's important because love is a picture of the gospel and the gospel informs everything. So that's number one. Love. Jesus commends their love. Number two, Jesus commends their faith. And I know faith is one of those categories that there are more squirrely concepts about faith than uh, you can imagine. I'm going to define, I'll give you a couple definitions of faith. I'm going to, I'll give you my definition of faith. 
First of all, once we have, the, have a gospel-informed vision to love others for the glory of God, we can move forward. Once we see who we are and where we are and why we're there and what we're doing, now we begin to move forward into that area, right? But we need to do that in faith, don't we? It, we not only need to do it in faith, we need to do it only by faith. And I, and I say that because we're used to automatic pilot, man. We think the Lord created us with this massive battery pack that once we became believers, he just injected just all kinds of supernatural might and unction and ability and wisdom and heart and all that kind of stuff. And it just lasts a lifetime. And I'm just on the battery pack and I'm just kind of going and blowing and doing what seems to be the best. And we don't realize, no, no, no. We, we're dependent. We don't have a battery pack. We, we, there's a cable. There's a cable on every one of us. Now, you may have a little battery, but it's not much. And we have to stay plugged in, don't we? We have to stay dependent. We need to be led by God. It, if, if we want to get just human results, we can do that. Uh, just go ahead. I guess you've probably been doing it. How's it going? Maybe we have a little have a conversation over dinner on that one. How's all that stuff going? Why don't we try a different way? Why don't we try life with Jesus at the center, led by the Spirit of God, empowered by him, walking intentionally by faith, looking to him in everything that we're doing? There's lots of confusion about the whole issue of faith. We know the basic verses, Hebrews 11, faith is the evidence of... Faith is the ability to see the stuff that's invisible, but that's more real than you are, right? Faith is the assurance of the things that we hope for, the conviction of the things that are unseen. Faith, Scripture says that without faith, faith is important. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. You know that everything that we do that we are not doing with intentional faith, believing that this is what the Lord wants us to do, responding to what we believe is his beckon and leadership, whatever we do that's that way, it's not pleasing to God. Without faith, it's not possible to please him. So we've got to learn how to use this faith thing, don't we? If we're, if we're going to live a new kind of life. Without faith, it's impossible to please God because those who come to him have to believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. How, how encouraging is that? that? As we seek the Lord, he's there eager to, to reward us and affirm and teach us more and show us how to grow in knowing him better and following him more wisely and not being a religious idiot and, you know, just, but learning how to be like Jesus, that people liked being with him. And yet he had the words of eternal life and the kids enjoyed him. Everybody enjoyed him. Some people hated his guts. And so that's the, the welcome to being Christians on that front too. There's going to be certain responses to authentic Christianity that are going to be a joy. There's going to be fruit. There's going to be opposition. There's going to be, there could be persecution. The challenge with the church in Sardis was there was none of that. Nobody cared. They, they, they were like the church in America. Nobody cared. They were worthless. They had no influence. They, nobody cared because they were, they were in their church. They're doing whatever they're doing. Go ahead. Sing your songs, have your little religious thing, whatever. Marry among one another. It's okay. But, uh, but nobody cared about Sardis because there was no bold witness. There were no holy lives. 
There was no engagement with society. There was no conflict. In fr- there was no culture wars, right? And that's the way it is in America today. The, the church is absolutely insignificant. And it's because we've withdrawn from all of the arenas of life, and we're happy to just be Christians this hour and a half or two hours, and then we go back and happy to be just like everybody else the rest of the time. And guess what? It doesn't have any effect. Gospel doesn't look like the gospel. The world's not changed like we read in the book of Acts, all that stuff. It's like the, it's like the church in Sardis. But if we start to be the genuine article and we start to implement the reign of Jesus Christ, gospel lenses, walking in love, walking in faith everywhere all the time, put your seatbelts on because it'll get really fun. It'll get, it will get fun. Things to change dramatically. Okay? Here's my definition of faith. And hopefully, hopefully it's, not, it's not ridiculous. No, I think it's good. Faith, here's how I think of faith. Faith is confidence in, God's, in God and his purpose and his promise. It's my confidence in God himself and his purpose and his promise. Part two. Faith is confidence in God's purpose and promise requiring intentional, ongoing dependence. That's my definition for it. That's how it works in my mind. That's how I put skin on it so it isn't just this ethereal thing that kind of floats out there and doesn't do me any good. Faith is confidence in God's purpose and promise requiring intentional, ongoing dependence. And the first thing that's important here is faith is not about trust in God to get him to do what I want. Faith is not about that. That's not faith. That's nonsense. That's some kind of religious hocus pocus, okay? God already has a mission statement. God knows what he's doing. He's not waiting for us to know what's important and to really join with our agenda. He has a mission. He invites us to join him in that mission. And to the degree we do that, he has all kinds of promises, all kinds of resources, all kinds of provision for those that are a part of that. But there isn't a plan B. He just has one plan. It's the gospel. Okay? We join God in his purpose in the gospel. We trust in his covenant promises for all of those who are in Christ as those who are in Christ toward that end, toward his purpose. The, the second thing that's important here is to know that faith isn't a once and done kind of thing. We don't just pray the prayer and, and kind of you know, receive and, uh, and then we're done. We just kind of coast again. No, it, it, it's... It's ongoing. We, we are weak. We are needy. We are dependent. Our tendencies to function in autopilot, and, and we, we have to battle self-sufficiency. God's purposes do not move forward in our self-sufficiency. They just don't. We're just, we're just wasting time. And many of you would know, my, here's my favorite verse. My favorite verse is the last verse. Everybody knows Romans 12, 11, 1 and 2. I urge you therefore, brethren, present your bodies. Everybody knows that one. My favorite verse is the verse before it because it tells us about the therefore, why we present our bodies. Therefore, present your body. Well, what's the therefore? Why do we do that? It says this, Romans eleven thirty six. For from him, 
and through him and back to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. From him, through him, to him. We're dependent. We can't function alone. We're not going to bear any fruit alone. We need him. We need to know him. We need to be desperate for him. It should affect, it should, our desperation should be reflected in the amount of time that we're on our knees, time we're in the word, time we're taking counsel from people, asking wisdom. We, we, there's a whole other dimension of power and purpose and vision and fruit that God's got for us together if we'll, if we'll lean forward in these things. Jesus said, I do, this is Jesus talking. I only do those things that I see the Father doing. Jesus is completely under authority. He only does what the Father tells him to do. He says, I only say the things that the Father gives me. What does that say about us? That's the Son of God. I know he was in flesh, but that's amazing. Dependence. He, he, He modeled that for us. Because he wanted to show us what, what it's supposed to look like for us, how we should be living, how we should be thinking. Jesus walked in complete dependence on the Father's leadership and power as he engaged and fulfilled the work that the Father had prepared for him. Though our works in, in our puny arenas are very different from Jesus' call to the cross, okay, um, Our ability to steward our responsibilities requires the exact same intentionality and dependence on God's voice. Jesus told his disciples, it's better for you if I go away, because if I go away, I'll send the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he's going to lead you in all truth. So God has given us everything that we need to to follow him. He sent the Holy Spirit for us to know the Holy Spirit and be led by him. And we can only love others for the glory of God in the strength that God provides us. We've got to walk with intentional dependence on the Holy Spirit. We've got to walk by faith. Okay, third category. This is going to get real quick now. Third category, service. Love, faith, service. These are the the, the first three of the five that Jesus commends in this church. When when. when you're reading your, your New Testament, when you're reading the Gospels, tell me if you've noticed this. There are a number of phrases or actions in the way that Jesus engages life that you just see over and over and over again. And one of those phrases is this. And Jesus looked at the crowd. You think, initially, you just kind of pass by that. But you see it over and over again. There's something intentional where Jesus stops and and looks. He engages where he is. He engages who's there. He listens for what God's doing, what's on God's heart. Here's, Here's another one of those phrases. He looked at the crowd. He was moved with compassion. He was moved with compassion. You see it many times throughout the gospel. And so he looks. 
He, he engages. He's moved with compassion. And then he does a variety of things. If you go through the scripture on, you know, look through some of those verses. One time he's feeding the poor. He says, you know, uh, one, one time he's teaching his disciples. He says he looks at the crowd with his disciples. So he's training them. He says, come on, guys, let me show you what I do here. See all these folks? I want you just to look. What do you see? I say, a bunch of hungry people looks like a problem. I'm hungry too, right? He says, they're hungry, feed them. And then, you know, you have the the miracle of 5,000 or or whatever it may be. But those are over and over again. And so if we're going to serve people, we're not going to be able to feed them. We're not going to be able to feed the multitudes. And you never know. But uh, the process is Jesus looks. Jesus observes needs. Jesus is moved with compassion. And Jesus acts to display God's love. Okay? Matthew 15, he looks at the crowd. And uh, anyway, I said there are different responses there. John 4, we're all familiar with the story of the woman at the well. Jesus uses that moment with the woman at the well to teach his disciples as well. Uh, um, he's at the well as well. There you go. That was, that was a good one. Here's what it says. This is John 4:31. It says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has somebody brought him something to eat? It's a big issue, I guess. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of God and to accomplish his work. My food is to do the will of God and to accomplish his work. And then he says to them, open your eyes. Look right in front of you. Here's this woman who's come to know me at the well. She's gone back into the city. She's told everybody, hey, come meet a man who knows everything about me. He told me everything that I've ever done. And the whole city comes out to hear Jesus. And, and they're responding to, to Jesus and, and the gospel. And the power of God is moving in the city. And Jesus says to his disciples, he says, open your eyes. Look at the fields. The fields are white for harvest. The fields are white for harvest. I, I would wager that, that there's harvesting in a lot of fields in this room. God's given every one of us fields. And if we can just prayerfully stop where we are. You don't have to create a new arena. You don't need to go to Zimbabwe. You don't need to go to Haiti. You don't need to do something radical. God has sovereignly placed you right where you are. Just stop right there. Look. Feel God's heart. Notice people. Let God carry, put them in your heart. Look for ways that you can take initiative and be kind to them, and look, study them to see if there is some ability that you have. You may have wisdom. You may have five bucks. You may have a friend that you can introduce them to. You may have a ride to work. You may have, you can, it's infinite. You probably have something that would really bless them. 
Look at them, study them, carry them in prayer before the Lord and ask God to show you what you have that God gave you because he's calling you to live up for the glory of God and out for the good of other people. What can you give the guy? How can you help him with his work? How can you help them with their schoolwork? How can you help fill in the category, whatever your arena is there? Open your eyes, look at the fields. So we're, we're called to look. Who are the people in our fields? These fields that God's placed us in sovereignly. Number two, look again. Look prayerfully this time, okay? What does Jesus see when he looks in your fields? Allow the Holy Spirit to move you to compassion. Prayerfully consider resources that God's entrusted to you that could possibly serve, and then act in faith to love and serve people. And then just trust the Lord for the results. You know, the goal is not, we we just want to be faithful. We just want to be, we just want to learn how to do this stuff, right? We're not trying to get a testimony to... No, we're just trying to learn how to live up and out, to to really live that. Next category, very quickly, patient endurance, just like you're being patient with me this morning. God does not call us to be responsible for results. He simply calls us to engage all of life through the lens of the gospel to cultivate a passion to love others for the glory of God, trusting that as we walk in intentional dependence on the Lord by faith, he will help us to look at our fields, see what he sees, be moved, take initiative, trust God for the results. Being faithful plus trusting God will make you fruitful. Faithful plus God's grace equals fruitful, right? <laughs> That's patience. Sometimes it'll work out great. Some, sometimes people will think you're a kook. It doesn't matter. We just want to honor the Lord, right? We want to grow in living a life that's free from me at the center of self-consumption like the rest of our culture. We want to learn what it means to live as Christians, as little Jesuses who are given to the same mission to Love the world. God so loved the world that he gave his son, and he's giving us to to share the message of the gospel as well. Last area is your later works exceed the first. The scripture is real, real clear. You're faithful with little, you'll be faithful with much, right? Just be, what have you got today? What's your field today? Don't worry about more. What have you got today that is sitting dormant? What, what's dormant? right under your watch that the Lord wants to be involved in, God wants to take initiative in. As we look at 2015, what are the areas that the Lord would would want you to begin to sow in and cultivate and care and pray and ask God to to help you be, to to express, just like my friend. He took an interest in me. He had me in his house. We ate cheese, but we ate Captain Crunch. You know, we hung out. We learned, I learned, he, he was a friend to me. Who can we be a friend to? Who can, we, who can we involve in our lives? Who can we serve in some meaningful way and trust God for all of the other results? Okay, for the sake of time, I'm just going to close right there. Thanks for your patience with me. Took a little bit of a diversion there, but let's, let's just, let's just uh, wrap up, turn to the Lord, okay?
Lord, thank you so much. Lord, thank you for uh, the gift of the church of Thyatira that, that tells us what, what honors you. Love, faith, service, patient endurance, and uh, fruit that's greater at the end than at the beginning. Lord, we want that. And we know it all begins with seeing you clearly. Lord, we pray that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you, that the eyes of our understanding would be open to know the hope of your calling in the gospel. Lord, would you, would you open our eyes? Would you rescue us from all of the things that keep us from living a life that aligns with your eternal purpose in Christ? that we could uh, run the race that you've set before us for your great glory and the good of all those that you love. Yes, that in Jesus' name. I'll send you out with a couple verses. Here's Colossians 3. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Bless you guys. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.